1: You know who doesn't get a payroll tax cut? People not on payrolls.
2: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box. Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Jane Koston, ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, we are going to have a, a conversation about the economic crisis engulfing America, the gridlock in Congress, um, some some relevant white paperage, etc. But first, I did want to say at the top of the show uh, that I have written a book The book is called One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. It is about how there should be more Americans, uh, more babies, more immigrants, uh, more houses for them to live in, more clean energy for us to have our lights with. Um, I know you have a lot of questions. How's it going to work, Matt? Buy the book. Um, And in particular, what what I really want you to do is to pre-order the book, uh, because there's a lot of reasons pre-ordering is good, but like the simple explainer on it is that- Pre-orders all count as week one sales for the purposes of compiling bestseller lists. Uh, So if I can get people, it doesn't actually take that many books to be a bestseller, like a few thousand, like a fraction of the Weeds audience can get you there if you guys pre-order in August. Then if you show up on a list like that, everybody pays attention. Uh, even the haters need to talk about you and why you're terrible, which is all good. You just drive the cycle of attention and positivity. Uh, so pre-order the book, email a proof of purchase to One Billion Americans at penguinrandomhouse.com and you will get some swag coming your way. And also, if you want to uh, tweet your proof of purchase and at me, I'm going to do a random drawing and I'm going to abuse my prerogative as host of this show uh, to let one of you select our white paper of the week based on pre-ordering of my book. I want to change the world. I want to get denounced by Tucker Carlson. Uh, And these are things that can only really happen with your cooperation. Um, So with that, uh, everybody will sell more books if uh, Americans are not totally broke, And Congress should probably do something about that. Uh, because that was a
1: fantastic pivot, Matt. That was great. That was very well. On the other
0: hand, like having just found out that we are going to have in our future a randomly selected white paper because Matt has a book out, I now understand a little bit more just how it can be the case that like The two sides of congressional negotiations are still so far apart from each other. And yet everyone is so confident that something can happen because apparently this is happening. And I was not consulted, nor was I informed.
2: Well, when you guys write books, which I'm sure will be coming soon, whatever goofball promo schemes you come up with, uh, I will play along with. That's the deal.
1: We're just going to have an entire episode on the ins and outs of why George McClellan was terrible or the Battle of Stalingrad. But (laughs) we're getting back back to what we're actually talking about, because I think it's a fascinating discussion because it actually has become so much of congressional politics is there's what's actually happening on the Hill among people. And then there's the posturing that happens to us. There is the performance of politics that is happening to us. And what's happening here is that the performance of politics is getting in the way of politics, which is why you have among Republicans, you have a split between the Republicans were like like Marco Rubio, who tweeted out on July 29th that a trillion dollars in debt is bad, but it would be worse if we didn't do anything and we have to help people. Or you have Ben Sass and Rand Paul saying that Steven Mnuchin is a big government Democrat and that Democrats and Trumpers are trying to outspend each other and They're you know, the White House is trying to solve bad polling by agreeing to indefensibly bad debt Or you have Rand Paul saying that he feels like he came out of a Bernie bro caucus meeting because Republicans are proposing new spending Which is I mean, this is Rand Paul. So that kind of checks out for him, but this is an example of how on this particular issue a lot of politics is about posturing, but occasionally you actually do have to do something. And so what the White House has said repeatedly is that they want to make the price tag for the, a phase four stimulus smaller and essentially make it so that fewer people get actual money because they've heard from folks at Heritage and elsewhere that giving people money is bad. But Trump has repeatedly said that he wants to give people money, though what that actually means, no one knows. And the people who want money need money. So this has become a moment in which the posturing and the politics are really at odds with one another. This is
0: helpful because I admit that this is one of those things where, like, as someone who does not for a living follow the day-to-day incremental what is going on, I have found myself entirely lost with just kind of the basic question of what various entities are trying to solve. And it it seems that this is kind of a standard problem in Congress where the divide isn't between people who want to solve the problem one way and people who want to solve the problem another way. The divide is between people who think that action is necessary and worry people who think who worry that action is going to be worse than inaction in terms of like the cure worse than the disease kind of thing is that a correct way to describe it with the kind of Rand Paul you know Steve Nugent split
1: here that that seems to me to be what's happening here because I think that there's been a lot of it's interesting because you have a lot of people who all are, quote unquote, on the conservative side of this debate, but none of them get along and all of them are mad at each other. And so you have the Stevens-Moore of the world saying what we need is a payroll tax cut. And he's actually talking about taking an end round around Congress to get another payroll tax cut because Lord knows he loves a payroll tax tax cut. And I've, I've talked to Moore about this issue and his view has not changed. Um, and so... And it's interesting because I asked him, you know, if you passed hypothetically a trillion dollars in aid to states and cities, that would be probably good for the Republican Party to be able to say we did this. We did the thing. You know, we stood up for the working people. We stood up in, you know, in it. We enacted a policy that was truly populist of the Vox populi. And I asked him, you know, wouldn't that help the GOP? And his basic view is that no, it wouldn't because increasing debt wouldn't help the Republican Party's political interests. And so this is a back and forth that's actually been happening for a long time. I've talked a lot on this show about the breakdown in fusionism within the Republican Party, but also there's the growth of an economic populism that believes that quote unquote zombie Reaganism is a real problem that you can't at a certain point especially for most Americans, you know, the tax cuts that benefit high-end earners aren't really benefiting the people who are purportedly voting for the Republican Party right now. And even from a, you know, a language perspective and polling, it's not very effective in general at getting Republicans what they want, which is, you know, greater popularity and greater sway for their economic viewpoints. And so, but If you listen to Club for Growth or you listen to Heritage Foundation, both of which are powerful voices in the Republican Party, both in the state and federal level, they're saying like, we got to cut these taxes. We have to curtail unemployment benefits because unemployment often, in their view, pays more than people having actual jobs. And so, you know, it helps it for, you know, it keeps people home from work when they should be returning to work which has its own set of problems, because it essentially, you know, if you're an essential worker, you are at greater risk of contracting coronavirus, the very thing that we are trying to avoid purportedly. And so asking people, you know, telling state governments to curtail unemployment benefits to force people back into workplaces where they could contract the pandemic, that was why they were at home in the first place, seems a little problematic to me. But this this is a back and forth. This is another example of how coronavirus has meshed on to existing divides and challenges and inequalities that are already happening in our politics and made all of them worse.
2: So Jane alluded to zombie Reaganism. And I think that really to understand what's going on, Today in Congress, at least if you want to understand it in like a weedsier way, it is actually useful to go all the way back to the economic crisis of the 1970s. Um, so in the 70s, at the beginning of the 70s, right, you had Richard Nixon saying we're all Keynesians now, right? The Great Depression was over, uh, World War II had happened, we were in a new era when. We certainly had party competition and Nixon and George McGovern disagreed about a lot of things, but there was a consensus that demand side management could keep recessions brief and painless, avoid depressions, and that was essential. Republicans had repudiated the doctrines of Herbert Hoover, accepted the macroeconomic philosophy of Franklin Roosevelt, and were now disagreeing with Democrats about the Vietnam War, about uh, the traditional family, like all kinds of things, but not active demand management in the economy. And that was always controversial, right? There was conservative criticism of Nixon. I think it was William F. Buckley had a joke that like, I never liked Nixon until Watergate. You know, the the idea being that he was was too moderate, but he kind of owned the libs there. Um, You know, and then Gerald Ford became president. Uh, He was very much from the moderate school of Republicans. He was then beaten by Jimmy Carter. And there was like a big, you know, big economic problems during the Carter administration. Unemployment was stubbornly high. The inflation rate was also high. And conservatives said, this Keynes stuff, this has failed. What we need is a supply side revolution. And that's come to just be associated with, uh, people who like to say that tax cuts pay for themselves, but there was like a bigger philosophy there, right? And it was, look, to actually fix the economy, to bring inflation down and unemployment down, we need to cut regulations, we need to cut taxes, we need to make investment in capital goods worthwhile, and that's what's gonna mobilize the economy. So Reagan wins with that message. He does some of that stuff, and the economy does get better, right? And there's been a sort of disagreement ever since then of like, did Reagan's supply side revolution fix the economy? Or I'm going to say more plausibly, did oil prices just go down because the geopolitical situation changed? But conservatives very much believe that Ronald Reagan's supply side revolution fixed the economy. And what you see on the more intransigent side of the Republican Party is a belief that not only did Reaganism work in the, in the early 1980s, but that Reaganism is a doctrine for all times and all circumstances. So cutting regulations and cutting taxes is always good. Like it was the right thing to do in January, um, but the worse things get, the more dire a crisis becomes. That only shows how much we need to cut taxes and cut regulation. And so the payroll tax thing is not, I mean, it's something Trump is enthusiastic about, but it's its something that is acceptable to more. He knows that the Obama administration did a payroll tax cut as part of their stimulus, but he doesn't believe in stimulus. He believes in supply-side reform, but a payroll tax cut is a kind of supply-side reform. And supply-siders are against all spending, right, on social welfare programs, the whole idea of demand management. But unemployment insurance is particularly irksome to them because it's not just wasteful spending, which is bad, but it is specifically spending that makes it easier for people to get by without a job, right? And their whole philosophy is it should be the opposite that you, that if you do anything, it should be less taxes for people who are working and who are investing. Um, that if you spend money on something and it's like liberals need to get in this mindset, but like, Conservatives like the military, and that's, you know, one reason that they don't mind defense spending as much. But the other thing is, if you think in supply side terms, right, buying lots of tanks precisely because it doesn't help people in the way that progressives want to help people doesn't discourage anybody from working. It's just a market opportunity for steel companies and the makers of whatever those fucking giant tank guns are. I mean, I, I don't know what goes into a tank, but that kind of spending is acceptable from a supply side viewpoint. Whereas like helpfully spending, right? Like give checks to everybody, give money to the unemployed, give money to the poor, the kind of things progressives like, that's what's really bad from a supply side view. And now there's this war, as Jane said, in the conservative camp where I don't think anyone is repudiating Uh, like historical Reaganism. But what what the more populist people are saying is that, well, that was a doctrine for its time. And this is not that time. We are not afflicted by the specific problems of the 1970s, and we should be more open to other things. And Marco Rubio is definitely in that camp, like he and Orrin Cass have been a little bit... uh, coit, I think, in terms of like what are they actually saying about the economy? But they're clearly saying, like, we have a different set of problems today. And Trump, right? Like what a what a really effective president would be doing at this time is like picking a side in an intra-party debate and trying to, you know, most members of Congress don't actually have opinions about this kind of thing and just gets steered by leaders but Trump himself is like on both sides of this divide all the time because he's a little I don't know if you guys saw the John Jonathan Swan interview which was not about yes. this but it just really confirms that like president Trump is totally out to lunch like like he has no idea what's going on and this stuff is like so much more like tedious and like wonky than the stuff Swan was asking about, which is just like literally, like, are the numbers going up or down? And like, he has no idea. So he can't he can't manage the coalition. And Mitch McConnell is just like desperately trying to get something together that Republican senators will vote for. Um, So he's got a trillion dollars, which is like way less than the economists who believe in stimulus say you should do but if you don't believe in stimulus like of course a trillion is better than 3 trillion but like like rand paul right like you were saying jane like he, he doesn't think this is a conceptually sound so like he doesn't care that the package is smaller than what stimulus believers believe in and it's very uh it's it's neither fish nor fowl as they say
0: right i mean i think that the the problem here uh, isn't just that the like Donald Trump doesn't have either strong ideological priors or a carefully reasoned policy conviction as to what the best way out of this is. The problem is that there isn't anyone in the Republican camp that is making a forceful argument for a particular agenda that's tied to the current coronavirus moment, right? Like the fact that this is a standard issue, you know. like keynesian macroeconomics debate matt what you were alluding to is like the populist argument is implicitly okay this is fine but we have a literal pandemic and so paying people to stay home is in fact epidemiologically a good idea but they're not saying that affirmatively conversely you could make a logical argument a two-pronged one one that because demand management doesn't work pumping money in through payroll tax cuts is an imperfect fit for the current moment. Like, it doesn't actually solve the, you know, people not going out and spending money and also losing their jobs problem. But it's the only lever we have that does anything at all. And so it's better than nothing. You could also make the argument that, okay, we are trying to put Americans on an economic footing that they can sustain until we get a vaccine because we don't think it's going to get better. Like, you could see the argument of we're not going to Give massive amounts of state and local revenue aid because we want them to be pressuring businesses to reopen. We want people to feel that they need to go back to work. But we're doing that because we don't want to give anybody the false hope that all they need to do is hunker down for two weeks and this whole thing will be solved. That would be partnered with like a very aggressive, you know, public awareness masking campaign that would be partnered with some. Tempering of optimism about vaccines so that you don't build people's hopes up and then, you know, lead to a massive political and behavioral backlash when a vaccine doesn't materialize in two months. That argument isn't being made. And so you end up having this thing where you look at like what. Nancy Pelosi and House Democrats are are asking for, and there is a lot of stuff in there. And like maybe you know, it's it's not that I'm it's not that that is a a super coherent theory of what precisely the things are that are the problems we most need to solve, but there are things in there that are tied to specific problems, whether it is state and local aid because of state tax revenues, you know, extending the unemployment insurance because you do not in fact want to force people to go out and look for jobs when there are neither jobs nor like public health available outside. Even though there have been like lots of negotiations between Republicans and Democrats on this stuff over the last several days, it's become clear that those are very preliminary negotiations where like now they uh, now the camps appear to understand how far they are apart, but there ha- haven't been any horses getting traded because it doesn't sound like, you know, in order to trade some horses, you have to understand which are the horses that you don't want to give up. And that's where it doesn't seem like there's any kind of consensus because there isn't a forceful argument for what here is the problem we're trying to solve.
1: Right. there, I think that there very much is a sense that you have a two-pronged argument, but one prong is missing. And so the argument of we will you know we will scale back unemployment and we would have people go back to work would require the other prong of it is safe to go back to work and you have a work to go back to and so much of this discussion of like payroll tax cuts is like you know who doesn't get a payroll tax cut people not on payrolls and so i think that there is it's interesting to see these economic policies and that's i thought that um you guys were very smart on talking about marco rubio that like yes generally, we have this understanding of how we would like the economy to work. That understanding, unfortunately, does not apply in the midst of a global pandemic. And so I think that there's a sense for a lot of Republicans still that, no, 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 the, like this economic policy remains sound. We have to do these things in the way that we would do them if there were not a global pandemic. And the issue is that that doesn't seem... One, to mesh with reality, but also it's not meshing with what voters want. And I think that that's something that's particularly interesting about the zombie Reaganism argument is that part of the implied message of Trump in 2015, 2016 was that Reaganism didn't work was that asking people to accept cuts to Social Security while also Cutting taxes for the people who they work for and paying for wars in Afghanistan and Iraq didn't make any sense, which that's true. It didn't make any sense. And then it turns out that Trump didn't particularly care about that. And Mitch McConnell most certainly does not care about that. So we're like, Actually, we should have more payroll tax cuts, and we should have an economic policy directed by the Peters Navarro of the world, and we should continue to spend a lot of money on foreign wars. And it's essentially like if you had a two-pronged argument and you decided both of those prongs were needless and useless, and then you just have no argument whatsoever. Well, and so another
2: thing that's relevant to, to this conversation that, that I think can get sort of missed if you're scanning the headlines is that normally when we think about how is the economy doing, right? There's a lot of different variables that you can look at. You can look at household income. You can look at job numbers. You can look at wage numbers. You can look at GDP numbers. Um, and they just, they generally move in the same direction. And things will happen where like for a long time during the Obama years, uh, more people were getting jobs and GDP was going up and the stock market was going up, but wages weren't really going up, Uh, but they weren't going down either. And eventually, as more and more people got jobs, wages did start to go up. So still, even though people would talk about a disjunction, like directionally, like things were getting better in like 2011, 2012, 2013. They just weren't getting better like super duper fast. What we've seen over the past few months is an actual complete separation of some different indicators, right? In which we have seen GDP numbers do terribly. Employment numbers do worse right? than that, like the worst unemployment figures since the Great Depression. Uh, but the stock market has done fine. And critically, personal income has actually gone up. And that's really important for people to hear. Personal income has gone up despite the collapse in GDP and, and employment. And that's because $12,000 checks went out to most American adults. And the unemployment insurance, even though people have had trouble signing up for it, it's been very generous and After a few weeks of problems, people have gotten it uh, so uh, lots of people are about as well off in their personal financial situation as they ever sort of have been. And then you look at the stock market and, you know, some people see this as a question of sort of chicanery uh, but actually like personal income has been robust. So people continue to buy things, uh, but they don't buy all the things that they used to buy. And unfortunately, the sort of tragic nature of this is that the kinds of things that people have cut back on are disproportionately what's produced by locally owned independent businesses. Whereas the kinds of things that the companies that make up the stock market make, like there's been no reason not to buy them, right? Like this is a perfectly fine time. Like I have bought more random computer swag than ever before, uh, because I sit in my stupid basement all day, like messing around. So I've got a webcam. I've got, you know, an external keyboard. Right. And so like Apple's doing great. Amazon's doing great. People still search for things on the Internet. Right. And so like stock markets up. Small businesses are collapsing. It's 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 sad and it's unusual. But this debate is where that can all come crashing to a halt. Right. Now normally you would say anyone who's sort of you know moderate to conservative would say well look income can't just go up and up and up if employment and actual production are not going up like that doesn't that doesn't work Matt like this isn't like fantasy communism people need to actually do things and and that's i think just how republicans are conceiving of this that like we need to get people Back into paid employment by any means necessary, including sort of rushing on pandemic measures, yanking out bonus unemployment insurance, et cetera. Democrats are kind of saying, like, no, like that Wiley e. Coyote moment has not arrived. Like, interest rates are still really, really low. Inflation is modest and fine, in part because all these things, like, Google and Facebook don't face meaningful supply constraints. It's not like, well, if everyone's sitting at home like doing their internet stuff, like who, who's going to make the internet? Like, there's plenty of internet to go around, right? It, it's fine. Uh, things that we have real scarcities of, right? Like buildings, uh, those are going underutilized because we're not we're not out there. And so Democrats are saying, look, like, just just keep the party going. Like all kinds of terrible things are happening in the world. But household income has stayed okay. Nothing terrible is happening on that front. And we can prevent anything terrible from happening by just continuing to cut checks while we work everything else out. And I think that just uh, not just Republican members of Congress are ideologues, but like the kind of Main Street businessman type who form the kind of backbone of the Republican Party, who Republican members listen to, like the guys who own the car dealerships, it it like it rubs them the wrong way. Just like on a brute instinctive level, this idea that we can just have millions and millions of people out of work and just give them money and the three of us can like sit at home and type like like to them like that doesn't work right like it's it's not real like the economy is in dire straits unless people are in jobs and even if that means exposing them to health risk even if it means real living standards fall like they want America back to work. And the Democratic stimulus package, which is different from 2009 Recovery Act in that sense, it's not a back to work package. It's a don't get evicted from your house package. It's a hold tight, hopefully we're going to get a vaccine at some point package. And it's honestly like a, a good idea, but I can see why a lot of people in conservative politics find it like too trippy and weird.
0: I mean, this this can't be disconnected from the kind of broader question of where America is in terms of pandemic response, right? Like there's a fairly shared broad awareness that we are doing badly on this front right now and that things could have gone differently this spring that would have made it That would have put us in a better position right now. That's separate from the question of kind of what can be done about it at this point. And there seems to be a certain understanding, you know, across ideologies that like are that the system is just not capable of a super coordinated, super competent pandemic response whether that's because of like the character of the president the nature of the federal system uh there are some people who I, I think are kind of overly hastily blaming americans for like failing the marshmallow test or for you know themselves not taking long enough to really allow the community spread to slow which i think is i think is an instructively wrong thing to say right because
1: it really speaks to our puritan heritage that somehow this is our individual fault right
0: i mean it, it does it is understandable that it is definitely true that because to the extent that the curve got slowed in spring a lot of that was because of in independently voluntary actions by people and like there was definitely a very strong shared willingness in early spring to allow things to lock down so that we could crush the curve. It's not super. The problem is that it's not Americans fault. that The curve didn't get crushed, right? Like there were just mixed messages about what exactly a lockdown was supposed to do, which we discussed at the time. But at this point, because that has happened You don't see a lot of people in you see people saying in this kind of counterfactual sense, if we shut everything down for four to six weeks, we really could get on top of this. But no one is seriously proposing that as like the basis for the phase four stimulus package. You don't have Nancy Pelosi saying, look, we have a chance to kill the coronavirus once and for all, but it requires that we just pump a lot of money into the economy so nothing can happen for four to six weeks. Instead, what you have is kind of an understanding on both sides that we're going to be muddling through this. And so how do we muddle through this in a way that most mitigates the harm? And, you know, what we're describing Republicans saying is we need to mitigate the harm to a functioning economy in which people are in the workforce, uh, because that's going to put us in the best footing when we return to an epidemiological normal. And Democrats saying we need to mitigate the harm to like a massive wave of eviction notices. And, you know, like we need to make sure that that people are preserved for the jobs that will eventually return, we assume, once there is an actual vaccine.
1: I think the last thing that I wanted to say on this point is that it's impossible to think about how Republicans specifically, not necessarily conservatives, but Republicans are thinking about this issue without contemplating the fact that this does have a lot to do with the election and how much of this is this idea And you see it if you go through, um, I poured through pretty much everything the Heritage Foundation has put on a coronavirus fiscal policy over the last couple of months. And so much of it is the economy was really, 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 really strong. And that was great for Donald Trump. And now the economy is not so strong. And that is bad for Donald Trump. So if we could just retcon ourselves back to late February, then everything would be fine. And whatever we need to do in order for that to happen, well, we should just do that. Which seems, I mean, for one, that's basically impossible because of the number of small businesses closing and the number and the fact that especially the, the issue is in part that coronavirus does not particularly care about the economy. Coronavirus is not going to be like, oh, you want to reopen your bar? That sounds cool. I'll be over here. No, you're seeing like re- uh, growth in infections. This is happening globally, by the way. Um, you're seeing... A rise in infections in France. Um, you know, in Australia, th- there is one state in Australia that's instilled a curfew where the leader of that state, I believe it's Victoria, said where you slept last night is where you're going to be for the next for the uh, basically the foreseeable future. And so what you're seeing is that all of the things that we want to do, all the things that we need to do in many respects to continue economic life and a lot of the things that life did not stop for coronavirus, police brutality did not stop for coronavirus. The issues that divide us the most did not stop for coronavirus. And so what you're seeing is that so much of the economic imperative of opening up businesses and opening up industries and trying to do this as safely as possible, even the schools debate, you are saying that coronavirus does not particularly care. Coronavirus is like, cool, lots of people close together in in, in an enclosed space, breathing. Awesome. Let's spread. And so I think that it's important to think about how much this has to play in with the election and how much this has to play in with a virus that does not particularly care about our economic viewpoints.
2: We should take a break, and then, and then let's talk about some of the, the specifics in these packages.
3: Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast, from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season— We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow dot com slash weeds.
2: What Democrats put on the table here, this was their HEROES Act that they passed months ago. It's a roughly three trillion dollar. Actually, I should say I start with big figures because uh the specifics get very specific. But you know, one thing I, I did a-, a couple weeks ago was I just sort of asked macroeconomists, like what scale of expenditure do they think is needed? And what's interesting is that they're talking about two different kinds of numbers, right? So one set of estimates, lower estimates around one and a half trillion dollars, was what do we need to sort of get us past the election, past the new year, past Inauguration Day, into, you know, a few weeks time so that there could be a phase five bill, right? They say about 1.5 trillion dollars. So that's in the neighborhood of the Republican money. And, and if, there, if a compromise arises, that may be what we wind up doing, right? A sort of kick the can down the road. Higher number around three trillion or even higher, four trillion or more is more like what economists were thinking in terms of a comprehensive solution, right? A leave the car with enough tank gas in the tank to get where you're going, not just to like have a crisis at the start of the Biden administration. So Democrats are proposals are more along those lines. Um, So Heroes Act has a bunch of money to extend the $600 a week unemployment insurance for several more months. It has another round of $1,200 stimulus checks for almost everybody. Uh, They open, they they want to include uh, dependents who aren't children this time. So So it's a little bit of a bigger program than it was before. They also have a bunch of money going to state government, primarily through the channel of Medicaid reimbursement rates which is how Democrats like to do this because it, well, it helps states that have more generous Medicaid programs, which tend to have Democratic members of Congress. Uh, They also have some money through SNAP, uh, food stamps assistance, Um, and they have a pot of money for school systems, which was originally, I think, designed to avert layoffs. It wasn't really virus focused in their intentions. Um, An interesting thing about this is Democrats passed this package a while ago, House Democrats, with the idea of sort of gaining the upper hand politically vis-a-vis Republicans. So they can say now, we did our work, we passed a $3 trillion bill, Senate Democrats support this. All we need is like four Senate Republicans to come over to our side, and we can solve this problem. Like, just forget about Rand Paul. Like, he doesn't matter. We have a united Democratic caucus. Just come on over, Corey, Susan, just a few of you, and we're done. But in the interim, Democrats have actually raised their bid And so now Nancy Pelosi is talking about not just an extension of bonus unemployment insurance, but creating it as a sort of semi-permanent automatic stabilizer that would extend as long as unemployment is high. Uh, She's talking about a big new package for schools to address the health hazards and and safety risks around coronavirus. Democrats are talking about the need to put money into the Postal Service uh, because there is a sort of crisis unfolding in mail delivery, whose like full dimensions, I think we don't totally understand. Uh, But Democrats are saying, to the extent that the problem here is that the USPS needs some more money, and it's not just deliberate sabotage on the part of Trump appointees, like, let's go spend the money. Uh, So in that sense, the parties are getting further apart. Like Democrats are coming up with new stuff they want to put on the table. McConnell has his trillion dollar bill, uh, which, you know, I think it's just not big enough. And then it's limited by the desire to get things under a trillion. So he has um, this kind of loan program, small business loan program that Marco Rubio put in. It's based on work by uh, Adam Ozimak and and Adam Lettieri that I have touted several times in Vox's virtual pages. But Rubio was just, he was only given a very small amount of like budget to work with. So he has a very limited version of this program. It would help like seasonal businesses, which is fine. I mean, what we love our seasonal businesses, Uh, but many businesses that are not seasonal could use help. Uh, They cut, the bonus unemployment insurance uh, by about two thirds. Um, They do another round of checks, but it's not as generous as Democrats version. They have money for schools, but not as much money, nothing for the Postal Service, nothing for state governments broadly.
0: And the money for schools is also like explicitly tied to getting schools to reopen rather than trying to support schools as part of it. collapsing state tax
2: base. Exactly. And it's just it's it's small. If you did the Republican bill, it would be helpful relative to a do nothing baseline. But you were still going to have a massive state and local government budget crisis. You're still going to have a postal service budget crisis. And you're still going to have the um, economic welfare of unemployed people plummeting and The idea is this will make people uh, hurry to go take the available jobs, you know, which I mean, I think it will on some level. But also, if people don't have money, they won't be able to buy goods and services. And the actual level of employment demanded by business owners is going to go down rather than up. So I don't I mean, I, I don't know why Republicans are so focused on this. Uh, Lee Li, Li Zhou did a great, you know, Vox piece and it was just like there's no jobs. Like there are very large number of unemployed people for every job opening. And you know, so if there's if there's like one unemployed person for every job opening, then people's incentives to take jobs like matters a lot. Uh, if there's 20, it doesn't really matter. Like 17 people can pass on the job opening. Things like, I'll just take the unemployment insurance. You just need one guy, right? And there's no evidence that there's a problem filling jobs right now. There's just a lot of, you know, restaurant owners trying to do takeout or websites that are laying people off because there's no advertising demand. Like, it's a. The economy is fucked. Like I, 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 don't know what the what the incentive issue is exactly. Even though, like, I believe in it. I'm not. I'm not from some like lefty mumbo jumbo land where it's like we should abolish wage slavery or something. But you know, there's just not a lot of interest in hiring people right now
1: for entirely understandable reasons. Like, I think that we have to deal with the economy we have, not the economy we want. And we are facing an eviction crisis that is incoming for millions of Americans. And the challenge is on many of those points that like the landlords themselves are often people who they rent out a few properties and then they themselves are facing an eviction crisis of their own or you know the inability to pay. So there's these tumbling dominoes impacting our economy. And the response cannot be like payroll tax cut. The response absolutely cannot be like we can't do the things that we would do in other times because this is not other times. You can't, you know, you can't fight the last war and you can't make it March again. Like we could you know, you cannot run a campaign on let's make it February 27th again. I mean, I think
0: that the entire question here is whether you can in fact do that. Like normatively, it might not be the best way to craft a package, but I you know, obviously like The underlying question here is, if things muddle through as they are, is that enough for Republicans? And if it isn't, can Republicans manage to deflect blame? And it seems like Republicans have learned the lesson of the 2009 stimulus that you know, if it's your fault that the number is below a certain like any problems associated with being below a certain arbitrary size number are not necessarily the fault of the people who kept it small. And Democrats are trying very, very hard to avoid the 2009 scenario in which an incoming president has to spend a lot of political capital trying to do something that could have been done by his predecessor. But whether it's whether the politics of this are going to play out in the way Republicans want seems like the open question, not like a thing that is obviously going to go
1: badly for them. Is it time for a white paper? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Let's let's do it. Let's let's take the break. Let's uh, let's do the paper.
3: Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought.
2: The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural. Without being too strenuous, it was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun.
3: This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to Hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS.
2: Okay. uh, So we have an on-topic white paper today. Uh, This is by Amar Farouk, Adriana Kugler, and Umberto Muratori. And the title is, Do Unemployment Insurance Benefits Improve Match Quality? Evidence from Recent U.S. Recessions. Uh, So this is looking not at The pandemic. uh, But at the the Great Recession and other earlier episodes, they were more sort of macroeconomically conventional. So it just totally puts aside, because like one issue that's been in the mix here is like, do we even want people to go back to work? And they're looking at recessions where we clearly did, right? Like the goal in 2009, 2010 was to get people into jobs, right? through some kind of means. And and what happened in the 2009 recession was not that Congress uh, made UI benefits higher in terms of how much money you get per week, but they made the uh, duration longer. Because normally the way UI works is, uh, it's not only pretty stingy in terms of the amount of money you get, but it just... the benefits expire fast. So the idea is, okay, like we don't want you to like starve to death or lose your electricity just because you lost your job, but we do want you to go get another job like fast. Uh, and then during a big recession, we'll say, okay, we're gonna give you a little more latitude. We understand it's it's hard to find work. And so they ask, well, what happened there? And and they find that people get better job matches in the end, that like they act Choosier about picking jobs, but not not like lazy, not like just don't do anything. And then you know, a million weeks later, like oh man, I guess I better get a job. Uh, but they actually get jobs that match their skill levels better, and so you see fewer people sort of in position of being overqualified for their work. Fewer people like with PhDs. Uh, I don't know what, like working retail jobs. Um, and that this is particularly true for for women, for uh, non white people, for people with lesser levels of education. And that's something I think, you know, if you've listened to me talk about monetary policy, we always see that there's a lot of sort of low key discrimination in the labor market. And when Unemployment is really high. I think it seems like employers really kind of fall back on their biases. And when the unemployment rate gets lower, that becomes less true, right? It's not It's not like, I, I don't know, it's not like racism or sexism or whatever else just vanishes because there's less economic anxiety. But it's like when it's hard to hire people, everyone takes a good hard look at like, can this guy really do the job? Uh, but when unemployment is really, really high, it's like, eh i'm I don't like the cut of this guy's jib i'm i'm not gonna I'm not gonna give it to him. um, so you know that all seems pretty pretty good. It's a pretty optimistic take on unemployment, although it does confirm, i think the like lurking suspicion of car dealership owning republicans that like the welfare state, you know, it lets people get a little a little choosy, lets them get a little soft, right? And if you, if you believe people should just be out there pounding the pavement, taking a job, be like, what do you mean you're unemployed? There's a help wanted sign at the Taco Bell. Like the UI does discourage people from taking that Taco Bell job. They get the quote unquote, better match instead.
1: Right. I think that this really speaks to how in many ways there is, you know, there's a lot of talk um, on the internets in the discourse about the uh professional management class. I'm using very helpful air quotes, but I think that there there really is something to be said about the Republican Party's car dealership owner class. Because uh, you know, Ted Cruz had um he did a podcast a couple of weeks ago where he talked about the Republicans or the, you know, the party of the working class, but it's the party of the working class that also has people who work for them. And so I think that there there really is a sense here that the idea of you know what Germany did, for instance, even as its economy has faltered, but unemployment has uh, stayed at around 4%, is that they just cut checks to people. And they cut checks to people and that helps people stay in their homes, which does give you the space and the mental acuity to be able to say, look for a job if you wanted to. I think that there's an understanding of, I mean, I think this this is a long-standing misconception, but I think the idea that you know, unemployment will make you soft and desperation will make you hard and a better worker when that's, you know, that's the same reason why we see these stories about how wonderful it is that this elderly grandma went came out of retirement to drive a bus when you're like, no, no, that's not good. She should not be doing this. This is all very bad. And it kind of goes back to the conceit of what this even is supposed to look like, which I find concerning.
0: I think what's worth emphasizing about this paper is that it's not finding that workers are just holding out for better paying jobs and going to firms that pay better. It is like, affirmatively finding that this is a better situation for both the employer and the worker because efficiency is improved when there's better match those workers are free to go to a worker who isn't stuck in a job that's a poor match for them will be able to like go improve the effectiveness of the organization that they end up going to etc and what that says to me in addition to Matt's point about employers just kind of falling back on their biases in a time of high unemployment is like they're are massive problems with the way that you're running an HR department. If it takes people being able to like rely on unemployment benefits to find the best match for your firm in a time of high unemployment when demand is very very high for jobs, that you know, that kind of seems like the way around this Republican like logjam of whether you want people to go back to work going back to work or not, right? If markets worked in the like, ideally efficient way, you would have had some firms figuring out how to do hiring in a way that didn't have you hire overqualified people who weren't going to make your firm the best it could possibly, you know, who weren't going to do the job you were actually hiring them for, as well as somebody who didn't have as many traditional qualifications. Like, that seems like a solvable problem that this is pointing to that doesn't require higher unemployment insurance to fix, but that does allow for, you know, an an ultimate solution that is preferable for both employers and workers if you do have the state generosity to expand unemployment that that's a
1: big if there i mean
2: one thing in an employer match though right is like there's a there's a disjunction between what's like socially optimal and what's individually optimal for for Companies, right? Like, when, when I had J- Jennifer Toliak on, we were talking about, you know, finding jobs for reentering prisoners, right? And like, just like one of the big things there is it's, it's clearly like much, much, much better from society's viewpoint, if somebody hires the ex- cons, right? Like, both because they're people and they need jobs, but also because, like, you know, if if you have a criminal record and connections to the criminal world and also no job or source of legitimate income, like, you're going to do more, do more crimes, right? But also, like, you understand why that's not employer's first choice of person to hire. And when you just have a robust labor market, though, you get a better social outcome because low productivity, low wage employers have to stretch themselves a little bit, right? Because like everybody who's really model employee, right? Like you've got degrees, you're finishing high school, you're doing stuff on time, you're staying away from drugs. Like those people are all getting really good jobs. And so then the people whose business model is like, this job is not so great. Like, they need to take a risk on people who have problems. And that's way better for society. Like, we want recovering alcoholics to get jobs. We want returning offenders to get jobs. But, like, that's not, that's not anyone's dream employee, right? So you always have this tension where it's like, yeah, like, the business owners don't want to deal with problem candidates. They love a situation in which, like, well-educated, non-troublemaking, super competent people are, like, desperate to go get a shitty, low-paid job with bad working conditions. Um, and they'll be like, well, that's good for the economy, right? Like, we're we're filling our vacancies. But, like, that's not actually what a good economy looks like, right? Like, you want the real hard cases to like get an opportunity to like get some reps in and prove they can show up every day and and like get get on the right track and that means a situation in which like the desirable employees like have it on easy street whether that's because they can take an extra three weeks to find a job or ideally just because like the economy is healthy and everybody is like posted at the job fairs and and doing other good stuff yes well then. Cool. All right. I like it. Okay. Um, thanks, guys. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors. Thanks to our producer, Jeffrey Guild. Thank you to people who have pre-ordered my book. I really I cannot uh, emphasize enough that in these uncertain times, uh, the greatest thing you can do for society is to buy my book, uh, tweet about it, future proof purchase, you'll get in the drawing, you can uh, do something to annoy Darren Jane or me, whoever deserves annoyance most. <laughs> um, and the weeds will be back on Friday.
1: More to-dos, less time, and an
0: infinite number of tools to keep track of.